Let's pause for prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Amen. Well, I don't know about your week, but it's been a reasonably intense week in the Crossan household, I can assure you. Two weeks ago, we started praying that prayer that I've just prayed, and it's a very dangerous prayer. I've learned to pray the Lord's Prayer. It's a very dangerous prayer. It's a transformative prayer. Uh, perhaps there's only one more dangerous prayer in the New Testament, and I'm thinking of the prayer in Gethsemane. But two weeks ago, we started praying that prayer, uh, the very day that the Crossan household started intentionally praying it, uh, Mary's dad was called home to glory and we farewelled him at his funeral uh, last Tuesday. Two days after Bob's death, Mary and I were summoned to the rector's office at OBHS, Otago Boys High School. And that always makes me nervous. Forty years ago, whenever I was summoned to the rector's office, it was always bad news. It was always bad news. So it was such a delight to go in and hear the news uh, that Michael's been invited to be the head boy next year. And it's an opportunity for God's kingdom to come in that, in that school. So keep praying uh, the Lord's Prayer. This morning, we're going to look at one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I, I think I've heard, I've heard myself say that about four times this year already. Uh, but this is one of my favorite passages. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to Luke chapter 15. And if you want to know more about the character of God, and if you want to know more about the heart of human beings, then this is a good place to be. This is a good place to start. Luke chapter 15, reading from verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem, and large crowds of people are traveling with him. Luke has recorded that in the chapter preceding, and this included tax collectors, sinners, and Pharisees and the teachers of the law are muttering they are unhappy that he is mixing with these sort of people. He's even dining with these people. And so the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, are muttering. And it's in response to that muttering that Jesus shares this parable, singular. Three stories. The first story is about a man who has a hundred sheep, the shepherd, and he loses one of those sheep, and so he leaves the 99 unprotected in the fields, and he goes off in search of the one. Every pastor knows the tension of that, of leaving the 99 and going in search of the one who was lost. On finding the lost sheep, he joyfully carries it home. He calls his friends and his neighbors, come and rejoice. Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. The second story that Jesus shares in this parable is about the woman who has 10 silver coins. She loses one of those coins. She lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, she searches carefully until she finds it. She also calls her friends and her neighbors, rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. These two stories 
set us up for the third story in the parable, arguably the main story in this parable. It's a parable which I would hold off as one of the deepest insights in Scripture into the heart of man and into the heart of God. The parable of the man and two sons. Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal Son, The Prodigal God, excuse me, makes the observation that the church's historical focus on the younger son, and my little slip of the tongue there gives indication how often we refer to this parable as the prodigal son. Tim Keller makes the point that if we focus just on the younger son, we are missing the point of what Jesus is trying to say here. Remember the audience and the context. Jesus is speaking to tax collectors and teachers of the law who are muttering and scheming. And it's these muttering Pharisees who are really the primary audience for Jesus when he shares this parable. There are, of course, three characters in this vital parable. More importantly, all three are vital to understanding ourselves and understanding how and what guides us. Daryl Bock calls this parable the forgiving father. Picking up in verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. I was reflecting on this this week, and I was thinking, if my younger son came to me, whether he was a head boy or not, and he came to me and said, you know what, Dad, those 10 acres out at Waihola, I'd quite like my share of the inheritance right now. Give it to me now. I don't think I would be responding like the father responds. In fact, I would probably say, you know what, Michael, you'll be lucky to get the picnic table with that sort of attitudes. (laughs) But the father gives him what he desires. He gives him what he desires. And that's a real picture of the character of God. When we ask something of God, God doesn't violate our freedom. God never violates our freedom. Even if we set a course and choose a path that ultimately is going to lead to our destruction, God does not violate your free will. And that's the first thing we need to note in this parable. And so this young man, in all his passionate lust, sets off for a far country to see the world. He gathers the money that he's got from the inheritance. The father has given it to him. He gathers it together. He heads off to a far country, and he squanders it on wild living, the text says. Self-indulgent, decadent, extravagant living. He squanders the lot. And so we learn in verse 14, after he had spent everything there was, a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. You can sense how far this young Jewish man has wandered to be even mixing with the Gentiles, to be feeding pigs. He had wandered so far from his heritage, and he is in deep needs. 
And so he offers himself as a servant for hire. And this theme of being a servant for hire is something that is threaded through this parable. A slave or someone who offers himself for financial uh, recompense. And so he has moved from this place of being a son in his father's estate to this place of absolute poverty He has nothing, he is struggling to even feed himself, and now he's offering himself as a servant for hire. And so, in verse 17, when he come to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will sit out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. There's that theme again. He's no longer worthy to be a son and he's going to return back and ask that he could be a hired servant. There's an element of repentance here. Bill Bailey questions whether that repentance is genuine, but he is certainly turning around. He's turning back, and he rehearses a confession, a confession with echoes of Psalm 51, perhaps even echoes of Pharaoh's confession, I have sinned against heaven, and I have sinned against you. There's also in verse 19, very clearly, a declaration of shame when he goes back. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He feels the shame. He's going back to his father, carrying the shame, knowing the shame that he has brought, not only on himself, but on his father. And so, coming to his senses, he turns back and heads home. And then we come to arguably the key character in this parable. He got up, and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and so they began to celebrate. Kenneth Bailey, who I referenced before, a biblical scholar who has spent most of his time living in the Middle East, he spent 55 years unpacking this parable. He's made this his life story. And he, probably more than most, knows the nuances behind this passage. He talks about any Jewish man who gets rid of his estate and wastes it in Gentiles being cut off from that family. And there's actually a ceremony, a cutting-off ceremony that would take place for someone such as this. When he returns home, the village would gather and they would ceremonially cut him off from fellowship, and this young son is clearly aware of this. I've tended to always see the Father in this parable as our Heavenly Father. 
Kenneth Bailey makes a compelling case that actually we can see the Lord Jesus Christ in the Father figure as here as well. The one who deflects the shame, the one who deflects the anger of the village as the younger son returns. Remember the first story in the parable? It's about the shepherd. It's about the shepherd who goes in search of the lost sheep. And here we see the father going out and deflecting the anger of the village. Before the village could come and display their anger on this young son, the father deflects that anger and he kisses his son and he welcomes him home. And then he does some very symbolic things by offering him some signs of restoration. He turns the anger into extravagant grace and love. Romans 5.8 says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isaiah 61.10 says, Clothe me, He clothed me with garments of salvation and robes of righteousness. Now there is not one element of this story that is not significant. There is not one jot or tittle, not one letter, not one word, not one phrase in this parable that is not significant for the kingdom of God. And those three signs of the robe and the ring and the sandal, what do we understand by those three symbols? Well, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture to help shine some light on what the Father is actually doing. I'm going to turn back now to Zechariah, and in Zechariah 3, we read the following. Remember, the Father takes his best robe and he places it on the Son. He gets the servants to place it on the Son. Zechariah chapter 3 reading from verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand side to accuse him. And then the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? And now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes, as he stood before the angel. Remember, the young son has come back from the pig pen, literally. He is stinking in filthy clothes. Zechariah and his vision goes on like this. Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. They clothed him, and while the angel of the Lord stood by, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. The robe is a garment of salvation. His sins have been forgiven. The Father is saying, your sins have been forgiven and I'm giving you a place back in my home. The ring, what are we to make of the ring? Well, let's turn back to, let's turn back to Genesis 41 and I'm reading from verse 41 and we find that interchange between Pharaoh and Joseph that helps shine some light on the ring. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt, 
And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. The ring signifies authority. The father is giving authority back to this prodigal son. And then the sandals, I've often reflected, what is the sandals? They've always been a bit of a mystery to me. Well, let's allow the book of Ruth to shine some light for us. The book of Ruth, chapter 7, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandals and gave it to the other, This was a method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. A garment, a robe of righteousness, a ring and sandals. Salvation, authority and property. The father is offering full restoration back to the son. Regardless of what he's done, The father is restoring his son back as a son. The extravagant grace of God. And so the party begins. They begin to celebrate. They kill the fatted calf. They celebrate because as the father says, this son of mine who was dead, he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And if that was the end of the story we would all breathe a sigh of relief, but it isn't. The story continues. In verse 25, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and so he called one of the servants and asked, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. Why was the older brother angry? Well, he was angry because of the party that was being thrown for his younger son. He had experienced some of the shame. He had lost some of his estates. And he was angry that now they were celebrating because this son is getting all the blessings of his father. And so he refused to go in, but the father goes out to him. Just as the father went out to the younger son, the father goes out to the older son in his grace. Again, I was reflecting on this week. We had one of our sons home. I won't say that Sam's a prodigal son. I'll leave leave that aside. But we had him home for the funeral. And on Wednesday night, Mary, she didn't kill the fatted calf, but she prepared his favorite meal. And uh, she prepared a dish of vegetarian lasagna, Sam's favorite meal. And I was reflecting, we had a great family time, but I was reflecting, just imagine if Peter had said, you know what, Mum, you've never cooked me vegetarian lasagna this week. Not once have you done that. I'm not staying here. I'm going to go outside, and I'm going to go and see my mates outside. Now, I'm picking that Mary probably would have gone outside, and she would have pleaded, just as the father did, she would have pleaded, come on in, come on in. The family's back together. I'm picking, I would have gone outside and said, lock the door. If you're not coming, you're not welcome. That's up to you, son. 
But that's part of the picture of God here. The character of God, he goes out in his grace and he pleads with the elder son, come on in. Come on in. Come on into the celebration. Look at verse 29. He answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so as to celebrate with my friends. Notice the language. It's the language of obedience and master. There's no reference to his father there. Look, I've slaved for you. I've obeyed you. I'm your servant. And now look what you're doing to this younger son. You've never even given me a, a young goat. He's seething with resentment. He's so bitter. Verse 30. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. In contrast, the father responds with the language of love. Look at verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But the elder son is standing there and saying, this is so unfair. This is so unfair. I have been so faithful. I have served you. I have obeyed you. And you have given me nothing. He's seething with resentment and bitterness. It just seems so unfair. It seems so unfair. And how often do we seek for that fairness in our life? How often do we see others seemingly getting blessed and we seem to be in this place of poverty and struggle and difficulty and we find that resentment creeping into our lives? Matthew uh, 20 we find another parable that Jesus teaches, another kingdom parable about the workers in the vineyard that speaks directly into this. Remember the parable, the landowner, he goes out at nine o'clock, he hires some staff, he says, I'll pay you one denarius. And they say, yeah, great, we'll, we're on board, we'll do a day's work for one denarius, off they go. He goes out again at midday, hires another bunch of staff, pays them the same, again at three o'clock, again at five o'clock, I'm going to pay you the same one denarius. And then the guys that were working at 9 o'clock in midday in the heat of the sun, they learn that everybody's getting the same payment and they say, hang on a minute, that doesn't seem fair. What's going on here? And what does Jesus say? What does the landowner say? He says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? And then the kicker, he says the following. Or are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am generous? The elder son is seething in his bitterness, is seething in his envy because of the grace and the generosity of the father. Do you ever find yourself in that place? Do you ever find yourself acknowledging that others are seemingly in this place of blessing, this place of favor, and you find something in your soul going, so that just doesn't seem right. What about me? What about me? I've been obedient for years. I've been faithful for years. I've been serving for years. What about me?
Jesus would say to you this morning, are you envious because I'm generous? So when we look at these two sons, what do we find in the difference of these two sons? Well, we find in the younger son the self-indulgent rebel, a rule breaker, someone who goes off in his lust. He wants it now, and he squanders it, the rule breaker. And in the older son, we find the self-righteous controller, a rule keeper, someone who serves, someone who is obedient, and he's a rule keeper. And at its surface level, they seem so different, the rebel and the rule keeper. But if we dig a little bit deeper and we look at what is going on below the surface, we find that both of them are trying to get their own way and both of them are acting out of the flesh. In Galatians 5 verse 19, we find the flesh described in these terms. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. That's the younger son. He's acting out of the flesh, the rule breaker. But then Paul goes on to say in verse 20, the acts of the flesh are hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, and selfish ambition. That's the older brother. They're both acting out of the flesh. They're both wanting to get their own way. They're both in their very, very different ways, still lost until. Until the younger brother in humility comes to his senses and humbles himself and turns back to his father and his father clothes him with robes of righteousness. And so he allows him to no longer walk in the flesh. He clothes him with the garbs of righteousness with the Holy Spirit, and he's able to walk in the Spirit as he puts to death the flesh. But the elder brother remains outside of the celebration because he's still trying to control the situation. He's still trying to control his father. He's still acting out of the flesh. But the father comes to us, and he says it's not about the things. It's not about the money. It's not about the property. It's not about your service. It's not about your obedience. All of those things will come. All of those are a part of the kingdom, but that's not what it's about. It's about me, the Father is saying. It's about a relationship with me. It's about a humble, attentive relationship with me, and the younger brother gets it. The younger brother gets it. So where do you find yourself this morning? Are you a rebel? A younger son? Well, it's time to come home. If you've been indulging yourself, if you've been indulging the flesh, if you've been indulging the sensual nature of your man apart from God, it's time for you to come home. It's time for you to come to your senses, to turn back to your father who's waiting with arms open wide. It's time for you to come home. Or are you the elder brother seeking to control your life? Seeking to control the lives of others around you? 
seeking to be in charge, seeking to be in charge of those closest to you, even seeking to be in charge of God's. You know, one of the sobering realities of this parable that we glean from the elder brother is that in all our service, in all our obedience, we can still be outside of the banquet. We can still be outside of the celebration. It's time for you to come back to the party. It's time for you to humble yourself and realize it's about a relationship. It's not about what you're doing. It's about the Father. We see in this parable the character of God, the extravagant grace, and he will bestow his generous love on you if you will but humble yourself. Whether you're a rule keeper or a rule breaker, doesn't matter. Whether you will humble yourself is what matters. If you will just turn back, it's time to come home. It's time to join the party. God is waiting for you with his arms open wide. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Father, as we listen again to these familiar words of this familiar story, I pray that by your grace, you will reveal the truth of this parable that you're wanting to settle on our hearts. And so I pray for each and every one of us here this morning. Lord, grant us that extravagant grace, whether we are rule keepers or rule breakers, whether we are controllers or whether we are acting out of the flesh, help us this morning to turn around, to come back to you, and to join the party. We thank you for the extravagant grace that you hold out to us in Jesus. Lord, my prayer for each and every one of us is that we would leave this place knowing that you have clothed us with the robes of righteousness, that you have put a signet ring on our finger, that you have put sandals on our feet, knowing that we are ears, that we are your children, that we belong in the kingdom. So minister this grace, minister this extravagant grace to each and every one of us here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.